Our Enemies in Blue, Police and Power in America by Christian Williams. This is chapter four entitled Cops and Clan Hand in Hand, and this is the first of two parts. Quote, and the police are simply the hired enemies of this population. They are present to keep the Negro in his place and to protect white business interests, and they have no other function. Unquote. James Baldwin. In the later 19th century, as political machines, industrialization, and the new police reshaped urban society, politics in the South faced additional complexities in the aftermath of the Civil War. There, many of the trappings of machine politics were present corruption, abuses of power, favoritism, and street brawls, but with a difference. The status of the newly freed black population became the political question of the day. The Republican Party, dominant following the war, developed a constituency among black voters eager to assert themselves and relied on the occupying Union Army to suppress opposition. The Democratic Party aligned itself with disenfranchised Confederate veterans, deposed planters, former slave owners, and the other reactionary remnants of Southern society, including many poor white people ideologically attached to the old order. The coercive force of the Democratic Party was embodied in secret terrorist societies and vigilante groups, including the Black Cavalry, the Men of Justice, the Young Men's Democratic Clubs, the Knights of the White Camellia, and the Ku Klux Klan. As the Klan gained prominence in 1868, it concentrated on discouraging black voters, intimidating Republican candidates, and defeating proposed radical constitutions. But the Klan's defense of white supremacy quickly expanded beyond such narrow political goals. During the Reconstruction period, vigilante actions and policing were often indistinguishable. The Klan, which saw itself as a force of order, especially against black criminality, took up night riding, at times in regular patrols. Its members stopped black people on the roads, searched their homes, seized weapons and valuables, interrogated them about their voting plans, and often brutalized them. Quote, Bands of a dozen or more disguised men rode about regularly after dark, calling or dragging Negroes from their homes and threatening, robbing, beating, and occasionally killing them. Some white Republicans received the same treatment. Most of this activity followed a common pattern. Klansmen nearly always searched for and confiscated any guns they found. In a few locations, they made a blanket requirement that Negroes deposit their guns at a certain place by an assigned date or face a whipping. Generally, they quizzed their victims about their voting intentions at the forthcoming election. If a freed man answered that he planned to vote for Grant, he was likely to be whipped. If he said he planned to vote for Seymour or else stay at home, he was more likely to get off with a warning and the loss of his gun. In some cases, blacks were robbed of money, watches, and other possessions." Unquote. In many cases, the Klan totally regulated the social lives of the black population, breaking up worship services, opposing the creation of black schools, often with success, and establishing and enforcing a system of passes for black workers. In less routine actions, white mobs sometimes attacked individual black people, black political assemblies, and white republicans. These attacks often involved the police as participants or even leaders. For example, in April 1866, after a crowd of black veterans prevented the police from arresting two of their comrades, the police led white mobs through the streets of Memphis, Memphis, attacking black people at random. Mounted squads headed by police rode through black neighborhoods, beating anyone they found on the streets and setting fire to schools, churches, and homes. The attack lasted for days until martial law was declared. Forty-six black and two white people died, 
91 houses, 12 schools, and 4 churches were burned. That July in New Orleans, the police led a military-style attack against the Convention of Union Loyalists, composed mostly of black people. On July 30, as the delegates gathered at the Mechanics Institute, crowds of white men collected on the streets, many cops and firefighters among them. As a procession of a hundred or so black delegates approached the Mechanics Institute, a fight broke out. It's disputed what precisely led to the fight, but it's generally agreed that a white policeman fired the first shot. The black people returned fire and hurried into the building. Between 1,000 and 1,500 white people surged in after them, breaking down doors, firing into the assembly hall, and clubbing the delegates. A New Orleans Times reporter described the scene following the massacre. Quote, Out of the Senate chamber, once more in the cross passage, passed through the hall, here is the last step of the main stairway. Blood is on it. The white wall is smeared with blood in the track of what had been a live man's shoulder leaning up against it. Blood on the next step. Blood marks higher up on the walls. Blood and marks of sanguinary struggle from the top to the bottom. A door opens outward on the stairway leading down into the vaults. The first thing noticed is a bloody hand mark. Blood spots line the white walls on the side, and blood spots the steps. It is with a sensation of sickening horror that you leave all the scenes and respectfully picking your way through cast-off hats and shoes that are all over every floor of the building, find yourself in the open street, the sidewalk of which ran with blood." Unquote. With the convention in ruins, the police led bands of white vigilantes around the city, beating any black people they encountered and shooting at those who fled. The majority of the victims had no connection to the convention. At least 38 people were killed, and many times that number wounded. Overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, the victims were black. That afternoon, bodies were piled into baggage cars. Many of the wounded were loaded in with the dead, and witnesses later swore to seeing police systematically shooting those who stirred. No one was prosecuted for the massacre, though a congressional committee concluded that it had been planned by a group of police, mostly Confederate veterans. They were assisted by a know-nothing group called, appropriately, the Thugs, and a vigilante regiment named Hayes Brigade, acting under the leadership of Police Sergeant Lucian Adams and Sheriff Harry T. Hayes, respectively. These two examples, especially the Mechanics Institute massacre, illustrate the character of such attacks. As Melinda Hennessy explained, quote, the actions of whites in many of the Reconstruction riots, however, had less in common with mob rule than with the organized character of paramilitary units. Antebellum militias and slave patrols gave southern whites experience in local military organization, and this trend continued in the locally based Confederate military units. Unquote. White people adhered not only to the values of the slave system, but to its methods as well. The central role of the police in these two disturbances was unfortunately typical of the period. In her comprehensive study of Reconstruction-era unrest, Hennessy finds, quote, In only three riots, including Mobile in 1867, Vicksburg in 1875, and Charleston in 1867, did the police or sheriff try to quell the disturbance, and in a third of the riots, the police or sheriff's posse led the violence, unquote. Examples of police-led violence include the election riots in Savannah in 1868, Baton Rouge in 1870, and Barbour County in Alabama in 1874. Perhaps the starkest case occurred in Camilla, Georgia, 
where in 1868, Sheriff Munford J. Poor deputized the town's entire white male population to prevent a, pl a black political procession. A military investigation found that the sheriff made no effort to control the posse and, quote, was a party to the wanton and unnecessary destruction of life, which subsequently ensued, unquote. Where legal authorities were not themselves complicit with the terrorists, they found themselves among the terrorized. They were powerless to stop clan activity, prosecute offenders, protect their own constituencies, or, in some cases, defend themselves. For officers sincere in their duties, the situation was desperate. In Warren County, Georgia, Sheriff John C. Norris faced constant harassment for his efforts to enforce the law. Eventually, he was crippled in a clan ambush. The weakness of his position might be indicated by the fact that, though he could identify his attackers, he did not press charges. The impotence of local authorities was particularly felt in areas where they were dependent on the federal government for their power. As the federal government became increasingly reluctant to insert itself, especially militarily, into local affairs, city and county officials were left vulnerable. Sheriff Joseph P. Doyle of Madison County, Alabama worried, quote, I have nobody to protect me, unquote. When clan-type violence occurred, arrests were unusual, prosecutions rare, and convictions almost unknown. The attitudes, and sometimes involvement, of police officers and sheriffs certainly impeded the enforcement of the law, but this was only one of many obstacles standing in the way to convictions. Prosecutors were unwilling to press such cases, and magistrates were often glad to dismiss them. Klansmen frequently dominated juries, including grand juries and coroner's juries. Witnesses and victims like Sheriff Norris were intimidated and refused to testify, while clan members were eager to swear false alibis on one another's behalf. The law, when it did oppose clan activity, did so in times and places where the clan was politically weak. Quote, Wherever union men were numerous and sufficiently well organized to sustain the local authorities, Arkansas Governor Powell Clayton encouraged sheriffs to mobilize them as posses, and they were used to good effect. Thus, the sheriff of Carroll County managed to quell the small-scale terror there, even if he failed to catch the criminals. In Fulton County, where the governor had to send in reinforcements from other counties to make use of Monk's Missouri volunteers, the policy contributed to a mutual escalation, but was ultimately successful." Unquote. Even then, the usual form of conflict was not open warfare or even vigorous enforcement of the law, but a kind of rivalry of dual power. The police and the Klan became counterbalancing forces rather than outright antagonists. Under such conditions, police may have limited the Klan's worst atrocities, but they did little to protect black people from routine abuse and intimidation. Likewise, the Klan, while not usually driving the sheriff out of town or making good on their threats against him, limited the scope of his authority and greatly restricted his agenda, especially where the sheriff was a Republican. In Homer, Louisiana, the sheriff gave up policing whole areas of the parish where the Klan was strongest. One Texan sheriff found it impossible to raise a posse against Klan activity. White citizens told him derisively to, quote, call your nigger friends, unquote. But usually, law enforcement agents were unwilling to move against the Klan, even when they were backed by federal military force. And they were almost never willing to avail themselves of the one source of power that many that may have been most readily mobilized against Klan activity, the black population. Even when faced with widespread lawlessness, white officials proved unwilling to arm and rally their black constituency. 
It may be that they worried such a move would create a panic among white people and provoke further violence, or it may be that they feared creating a black resistance that they could not then control. Whatever the reasons, the result was disastrous for American black people. As renegade states were reincorporated into the Union and the federal commitment to Reconstruction waned, black people were returned to something very much like their previous state. When Democrats attained control of state legislatures and local governments, they passed a series of black codes designed to regulate the former slaves and restore a system of white supremacy, based not on the private institution of slavery but on publicly established segregation. Black people were, whether by law, custom, or clan intimidation, commonly forbidden to own land, run businesses, work on railroads, change employers, travel, or vote. This was termed, in the parlance of Southern whites, redemption. For black people, it was more like damnation. Slave patrols revisited. During the Reconstruction period, the line between legal and extra-legal authority became extremely hazy. The Klan took on criminal violence in the defense of an, anarchic view of law, of an archaic view of law and order, and the local authorities, especially the police, were either incapable or unwilling to challenge them. In many cases, the police were actually complicit with clan violence, and it seemed that the two organizations pursued the same ends, sometimes using the same means. These common features were not arrived at by chance. Both the police and the clan were adaptations of an earlier and deeply entrenched southern institution, the slave patrols. Quote, in the new regime of Reconstruction, southern whites were forced to adopt laws and policing methods that appeared racially unbiased but they relied upon practices derived from slave patrols and their old laws that had traditionally targeted blacks for violence. To resolve this apparent contradiction, the more random and ruthless aspects of slave patrolling passed into the hands of vigilante groups like the Klan. Meanwhile, policemen in southern towns continued to carry out those aspects of urban slave patrolling that seemed race-neutral, but that in reality were applied selectively. Police saw that nightly curfews and vagrancy laws kept blacks off city streets, just as patrollers had done in the colonial and antebellum eras. Unquote. The slave patrols helped form the character of both the police and the Klan. Like the slave patrols, the Klan was organized locally, operated mostly at night, drew its members from every class of white society, enforced a pass system and curfew, broke up black so social gatherings and meetings, searched homes, seized weapons, and enforced its demands through violence and intimidation. A former slave, T.J. Timms, or J.T. Timms, remarked, quote, There wasn't no difference between the patrols and the Ku Klux Klan that I know of. If they catch you, they all would whip you, unquote. As a part of this same tradition, minorities, especially black people, became the objects of police control, the targets of brutality, and the victims of neglect. Perhaps the clearest inheritance from this tradition is the racial characterization of criminality, the criminalizing of people of color, and black people especially. Presently understood in terms of profiling, the practice is much older than the current controversy. Under slavery, quote, bondsmen could easily be distinguished by their race, and thus became easy and immediate targets of racial brutality, unquote. The only thing new about racial profiling is the term, which makes prejudicial harassment seem procedural, technical, even scientific. One critic of racial profiling, David Harris, defines the concept in terms of more general police techniques. He writes, quote, Racial profiling grew out of a law enforcement tactic called criminal profiling, 
criminal profiling has come into increasing use over the last 20 years, not just as a way to solve particular crimes police know about, but as a way to predict who may be involved in as yet undiscovered crimes, especially drug offenses. Criminal profiling is designed to help police spot criminals by developing sets of personal and behavioral characteristics associated with particular offenses. By comparing individuals they observe with profiles, officers should have a better basis for deciding which people to treat as suspects. Officers may see no direct evidence of crime, but they can rely on non-criminal but observable characteristics associated with crime to decide whether someone seems suspicious and therefore deserving of greater police scrutiny. When these characteristics include race or ethnicity as a factor in predicting crimes, criminal profiling can become racial profiling. Racial profiling is a crime-fighting strategy, a government policy that treats African Americans, Latinos, and members of other minority groups as criminal suspects on the assumption that doing so will increase the odds of catching criminals." Unquote. Harris is right that racial profiling is a subset of criminal profiling, but he has the genealogy reversed. As we saw in previous chapters, long before the police used high discretion tactics and vice laws to regulate the lives of immigrant working class, their predecessors in law enforcement were using race as the factor directing their activities. Harris overlooks a crucial feature of this history. Both the slave patrols and the laws they enforced existed for the express purpose of controlling the black population. There was no pretense of racial neutrality and so there was less concern with the abstract aim of controlling crime than with the very concrete task of controlling black people. Black people were, in a sense, criminalized, but more importantly, they were permanently deemed objects for control. As cities industrialized, white workers formed another troublesome group. Efforts to control these new, dangerous classes were more legalistic and impartial, in form if not in application, than those directed against the slaves. Laws against vagrancy, gambling, prostitution, loitering, cursing, and drinking, the 19th century equivalent of our war on drugs, brought the habits of poor people into the jurisdiction of police, and the police directed their suspicions accordingly. Thus, contrary to Harris's account, racial profiling gave birth to the broader category of criminal profiling, not the other way around. What may distinguish our contemporary notion of profiling from simple prejudice is the idea that suspicious characteristics can somehow be scientifically identified and formulated into a general type in order to rationally direct police suspicions. It is the war on drugs that has most recently popularized profiling, initially because of the work of Florida Highway Patrol officer, later Volusia County Sheriff Bob Vogel. Vogel formulated a list of Quote, cumulative similarities, unquote, that he used in deciding whether to search a vehicle. These included factors like demeanor, discrepancies in the vehicle's paperwork, overcautious driving, the model of the car, and the time of the trip. In the mid-1980s, after Vogel made several particularly impressive arrests, the DEA adopted similar techniques in its training of local law enforcement. The scientific basis of Vogel's system is questionable. His cumulative similarities were based on a sample of 30 cases, and its application even more worrisome. While Vogel claims that race was never a factor in his approach, his deputy's behavior tells a different story. Black people and Latinos represented 5% of the drivers on the roads his department patrolled, 
but according to a review of 148 hours of videotape from cameras mounted in squad cars, minorities made up 70% of the people stopped and 80% of those searched. Of the 1,100 drivers appearing on the tapes, only 9 were issued tickets. Likewise, under Operation Pipeline, the DEA told police not to consider race as a factor, while continuously emphasizing the race of suspected drug dealers. The results were predictable. According to a 1999 report by the California Legislature's Task Force on Government Oversight, two-thirds of those stopped as part of Operation Pipeline were Latinos. The report noted the systematic nature of this bias. Quote, it should be emphasized that this program has been conducted with the support of CHP, California Highway Patrol Management. Individual officers involved in these operations and training programs have been carrying out what they perceive to be the policy of the CHP, the Department of Justice, and the Duke May John and Wilson administrations. Thus, we are not faced with rogue officers or individual isolated instances of wrongdoing. The officers involved in these operations have been told repeatedly by their supervisors that they were doing their jobs exactly right." Unquote. The Flawed Logic of Racial Profiling The theoretical groundwork for racial profiling was in place long before the DEA popularized its current form. Writing in the middle of the 20th century, LAPD Chief of Police William H. Parker defended the police saturation of minority neighborhoods. His views anticipate those supporting the use of other race-based police tactics. They're worth quoting at length. Quote, Deployment is often heaviest in so-called minority sections of the city. The reason is statistical. It is a fact that certain racial groups at the present time commit a disproportionate share of the total crime. Let me make one point clear in that regard. A competent police administrator is fully aware of the multiple conditions which create this problem. There's no inherent physical or mental weakness in any racial stock which tends it toward crime. But, and this is a but which must be borne constantly in mind, police field deployment is not social agency activity. In deploying to suppress crime, we are not interested in why a certain group tends toward crime. We are interested in maintaining order. The fact that the group would not be a crime problem under different socioeconomic conditions and might not be a crime problem tomorrow does not alter today's tactical necessities. Police deployment is concerned with effect, not cause. At the present time, race, color, and creed are useful statistical and tactical devices. So are age groupings, sex, and employment. If persons of one occupation for some reason commit more, than, more theft than average, then increased police attention is given to persons of that occupation. Discrimination is not a factor there. If persons of Mexican, Negro, or Anglo-Saxon ancestry for some reason contribute heavily to other forms of crime, police deployment must take that into account. From an ethnological point of view, Negro, Mexican, and Anglo-Saxon are unscientific breakdowns. They are a fiction. From a police point of view, they're a useful fiction and should be used as long as they remain useful. The demand that the police cease to consider race, color, and creed is an unrealistic demand. Identification is a police tool, not a police attitude. If traffic violations run heavily in favor of lavender-colored automobiles, you may be certain, whatever the sociological reasons for that condition, we would give lavender automobiles more than average attention. If these vehicles were predominantly found in one area of the city, we would give that area more than average attention." Unquote. These remarks clearly outline the logic of racial profiling and reflect the laws of such logic. 
Parker tries to deny police bias by relocating it from the individual to the institutional level. He then defends institutional bias by denying individual prejudice. He also attempts to justify institutionalized racism by casting it in statistical terms. Hence, we're reassured that race-based police tactics are not based on a police attitude or on a belief in the inherent criminality of people of color, while at the same time we are urged to accept practices designed to target specific populations. Parker explains unequal police attention with reference to variations in crime rates among different groups. No evidence is offered concerning these variations, but they are said to be the product of unidentified multiple conditions, which we are assured are not the business of the police. The possibility that policing may preserve or contribute to these socioeconomic conditions is not discussed, though the function of policing is identified as maintaining order. Put differently, Parker tries to justify the police department's discrimination with reference to other discrimination. If this line of reasoning is accepted, then so long as the overall system of white supremacy exists, no particular aspect of it can be faulted. Landlords could justify discrimination in housing or bankers in lending just by noting that the reason is statistical, that for some reason unemployment is higher among certain racial groups. Employers could justify discrimination in hiring by explaining, statistically speaking, certain groups tend to be less qualified, and so on. The moral and political faults of such reasoning are obvious, but there is a logical fallacy as well. An individual's ability to pay the rent, to perform a job, or to obey the law cannot be judged on the basis of the statistical performance of a group to which she belongs. In the end, Parker's argument is circular. The premises assume the conclusion. It calls for intensive scrutiny of people of color based on a disproportionate share of the total crime committed by them. And how do we know they commit more crimes? Because of their contact with the criminal justice system, obviously. David Harris explains the problem simply. Quote, in the case of consensual crimes such as drug activity and weapons offenses, arrest and incarceration rates are particularly poor measures of criminal activity. They're much better measures of law enforcement activity. Arrest statistics tell us that police arrest disproportionate numbers of African Americans for drug crimes. This reflects decisions made by someone in the police department, the chief, lieutenants, street-level supervisors, or even individual officers themselves, to concentrate enforcement activity on these individuals." Unquote. While admitting that the very categories of race are unscientific and a fiction, Parker argues that race is a useful fiction, and so should be maintained. But we should ask useful for what? Presumably for identifying criminals, or rather, for identifying suspects. That is, race is a useful fiction for delineating groups of people to be treated as suspects by the police. The analogy to the color of the car implies that use of race as an indicator for is fortuitous, that it is something of an accident. Of course, it's nothing of the sort. It's more paradigm paradigmatic than fortuitous, a matter of design rather than happenstance. Race, unlike car color, is used as a profiling tool because society as a whole uses race as a marker of privilege or privation. And according to Parker's theory, Race-based tactics are useful in crime control for just that reason. Today's law enforcement administrators still seek to justify police practices by appealing to racist conceptions of crime and criminality. In 1999, the New Jersey Attorney General's Office issued a report showing that during the two previous years, 97 and 98, 
40% of motorists stopped on the New Jersey Turnpike, and 80% of those searched were minorities. According to Carl Williams, the superintendent of the New Jersey State Police, that's because, quote, the drug problem is mostly cocaine and marijuana. It's most likely a minority group that's involved with that, unquote. Studies in other states reveal a common pattern. Following a 1995 lawsuit, the Maryland State Police were required to keep data on every traffic stop that led to a search. Temple University's John Lamberth analyzed the data from 95 and 96. He found that while black people represent 17% of Maryland's driving population and can be observed to drive no differently than white motorists, 72% of those stopped and searched were black. Fully one-half of the Maryland State Police traffic officers stopped black people in at least 80% of their stops. One officer stopped black people in 95% of his stops, and two only stopped black people. Likewise, a 1999 Ohio State Legislator's review of 96 and 97 court records revealed that black drivers in Akron were 2.04 times as likely as all other drivers to receive tickets. In Toledo, they were 2.02 times as likely, and in Columbus and Dayton, 1.8 times. Researchers with the North Carolina State University found that in 1998, black people were 68% more likely than white people to be searched by the North Carolina Highway Patrol, and a 2002 Justice Department report concluded that nationwide, quote, police were more likely to conduct a search of the vehicle and or driver in traffic stops involving black male drivers, 15.9%, or Hispanic male drivers, 14.2%, compared to white male drivers, 7.9%. The Boston Globe analyzed 764,065 traffic tickets from the period of April 2001 to November 2002 and found that black people and Latinos are ticketed at a rate twice that of their portion of the Massachusetts population. And once ticketed, black people are 50% more likely than white people to have their cars searched. Likewise, the LAPD statistics from July to November 2002 show that black motorists were stopped at rates far outstripping their portion of the local population. 18% of the drivers pulled over were black, while black people make up only 10.9% of the city's populace. Of those pulled over, black people and Latinos were significantly more likely to be removed from the car than were white drivers. 22% of black people and 22% of Latinos were removed from the vehicle as opposed to 7% of white people. And once out of their cars, black people and Latinos were more likely to be searched. 85% of black people and 84% of Latinos were searched, as compared to 71% of white people. The studies show another thing as well. Race is useless as an indicator of criminality. In Maryland, where 70% of those searched were black, the rate at which searches produced evidence of a crime was about the same for black people as for white people, 28.4% and 28.8% respectively, while black people and Latinos accounted for 78% of those searched at the south end of the New Jersey Turnpike during the year 2000. Evidence was more reliably found by searching white people. 25% of white people searched had contraband, as compared to 13% of black people and 5% of Latinos. According to the 1998 North Carolina study, 26% of those black people searched and 33% of the white people searched were found to possess contraband. In Massachusetts, 16% of white people searched were found to possess drugs, as compared to 12% of black people and 10% of Latinos. 
the evidence absolutely contradicts the idea that racial profiling is useful in getting drugs or guns or criminals off the streets. If we insist on viewing the police as crime fighters, profiling can only be seen as a mistake, a persistent disaster. But if we suspend or surrender this noble view of police work, and look instead at the actual consequences of what the cops do, profiling makes a certain kind of sense. It follows a sinister logic. Racial profiling is not about crime at all. It's about controlling people of color. Consequences of Profiling On February 4, 1999, Amadou Diallo, a 22-year-old West African immigrant, was killed by New York City police officers while standing in front of his own home. The four cops, Sean Carroll, Edward McMillan, Kenneth Boss, and Richard Murphy, fired a total of 41 shots. 19 hit him. Diallo was unarmed and had committed no crime. He was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time, and black. Stephen Worth, a lawyer for the Patrolman's Benevolent Association, explained the shooting. Quote, He's acting strange. He fits the rapist's description in a generic way. The reason they're shooting him is they think he has a gun. Unquote. Worth refused to elaborate on Diallo's strange behavior, the description he matched, or why the police would think he was armed, but witnesses later helped to fit the shooting into a broader pattern. They told the Village Voice that earlier in the evening the same officers, members of the Elite Street Crimes Unit, were stopping and searching numerous black men, seemingly at random. Such behavior fits the unit's established modus operandi. In 1997 and 98, the street crimes unit stopped and searched 45,000 men, mostly black people and Latinos. It made 9,000 arrests. Eric Adams, a police lieutenant and the head of 100 blacks in law enforcement who care, remarked, This is the unit that's been given carte blanche to do as it will to the people of the city of New York, especially in the African American community. Unquote. Amadou Diallo was not a criminal. He was not in any real sense a suspect. He matched a generic description. He fit the profile. He was a young black man and that was enough. He became, quite literally, a target. The police gunned him down and as he stood in his doorway. They fired 41 shots. Diallo's shooting represents only one cost of racial profiling. The loss is calculated in terms of bodies, bullet holes, scars, and stitches. But there are other victims, other costs, counted in years, marked off in cell blocks, ringed with razor wire. Race-based policing contributes to the overrepresentation of minorities, especially black people, in the criminal justice system. According to a 1997 Justice Department report, Lifetime Likelihood of Going to State or Federal Prison, 16.2% of black people and 9.4% of Latinos will be imprisoned during their lifetime, as compared to 5.1% of the total population and 2.5% of white people. The figures focusing exclusively on men are even more startling. An individual black man has a greater than 1 in 4 chance of being imprisoned during his lifetime, 28.5%, as compared to 1 in 6 for Latino men, 16%, and 1 in 23 for white men, 4.4%. When the statistics reflect recidivism rates, the disparity grows. Among non-Hispanic men, Blacks are 6.5 times more likely than whites to serve some time in prison during their lifetime, but 8.7 times more likely to be in prison on any one day." Unquote. These numbers may give some indication as to why racial profiling persists despite its demonstrable failure as a tool for stopping crime. Police and prisons have replaced patrols and plantations as the means by which white society maintains its control over black people. Crime and Control 
The racial politics of police suspicion are well illustrated by the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation's Operation Ready Rock. In November 1990, 45 state cops, including canine units and the paramilitary special response team, laid siege to 100 block of Graham Street in a black neighborhood of Chapel Hill. Searching for crack cocaine, the cops sealed off the streets, patrolled with dogs, and ransacked a neighborhood pool hall. In terms of crime control, the mission was a flop. Although nearly 100 people were detained and searched, only 13 were arrested, and none of those convicted. Nevertheless, and despite a successful class action lawsuit, the cops defended their performance and no officers were disciplined for their role. When applying for a warrant to search every person and vehicle on the block, the police had assured the judge, quote, there are no innocent people at this place, only drug sellers and drug buyers are on the described premises, unquote. But once the clampdown was underway, they became more discriminating. Black people were detained and searched, sometimes at gunpoint, while white people were permitted to leave the cordoned area. The Chapel Hills episode followed a pattern familiar from the Los Angeles Police Department's racially coded anti-gang efforts, which were at their peak just a couple of years before. In February and March 1998, the LAPD targeted so-called drug areas for sweeps involving between 200 and 300 officers. During the nine raids carried out in these eight weeks, they arrested 1,500 people, impounded 500 cars, and interrogated hundreds of suspected gang members. The next month, in April 1988, LA Police Chief Daryl Gates announced the beginning of Operation Hammer, concentrating similar actions in 10 square miles of the South Central area. Over the next several weeks, the police made 1,453 arrests, mostly for violations of curfew, disorderly conduct, and other minor offenses. Of those arrested, only 32 were charged with felonies, and 1,350 were released without any charges at all. Hundreds of other black youths were not arrested, but were stopped, identified, and had their names entered into a computerized gang register. About half of those with gang files were later shown not to be gang members. Sociologist Randall Sheldon concluded, quote, The overall purpose was merely social control of African-American youth, rather than serious attempt at reducing crime, unquote. Around the time Operation Hammer reached its zenith in August 1988, the LAPD raided a number of apartments at 39th Street and Dalton Avenue. In the process, they assaulted residents and used sledgehammers and axes to destroy walls, furniture, and appliances. Southwest Division Captain Thomas Elfont ordered officers to level the targeted building and, quote, make it uninhabitable, unquote. Sergeant Charles Spicer underscored these orders at the scene, telling the officers, quote, this is a Class A search. That means carpets up, drywall down, unquote. Police investigators later documented 127 separate acts of police vandalism, and the city paid over $3.4 million in subsequent lawsuits. Three cops, including a captain, were charged with vandalism and acquitted. Another pled no contest. Of the 88 cops involved, 24 were promoted to supervisory positions within three years. The Christopher Commission faulted this approach for creating a schism between the police and the community. Quote, because of the concentration and visibility of gangs and street drug activities and higher rates of violent and property crime in Los Angeles's minority communities, the department's aggressive style, its self-described war on crime, in some cases seems to become an attack on these communities at large. The communities, and all within them, become painted with the brush of latent criminality." Unquote. 
The Christopher Commission assumed that it is the war on crime that motivates police to target minority communities, but this relationship might well be reversed. Racism propels the war on crime, with race-neutral rhetoric as a fig leaf of justification. Imagine for a moment that certain crimes were demonstrated to be committed by white people, far out of proportion with their percentage of the population. No one in the white community would stand for the generalized suspicion and heightened levels of police contact that should follow from this fact, according to the logic of profiling. In fact, we needn't invent hypothetical scenarios to test this claim. Quote, Although whites are a disproportionate percentage of all drunk drivers, for example, and although drunk driving contributes to the deaths of more than 10,000 people each year, none of the defendants of anti-black or brown profiling suggests that drunk driving roadblocks be set up in white suburbs, where the hit rates for catching violators would be highest. Unquote. This simple observation is masked by the fact that white people are both the dominant group and, in the country as a whole, the current numerical majority. One might suggest that there are just too many white people for a useful profile to be based on such a broad category, but note that this objection assumes a level of individualization among white people that the practice of profiling denies in regard to people of color. The rationale behind profiling relies on the racist judgment that white skin is the norm, and that a profile must, to be effective or justifiable, be based on some deviance. I argued in the preceding chapter that profiling is a central aspect of modern policing. Bailey and Mendelssohn reason among sim along similar lines, noting that police work largely consists of looking for things that seem out of place. Quote, the fact that policemen are alert for incongruity probably does militate against minority persons. Living in a middle-class society dominated by whites, Negroes especially, and the poor as well, are likely to appear out of place more often than others. They are not only more visible to policemen by virtue of their expected association with crime, but they have more opportunity to be visible." Unquote. This approach to policing not only identifies certain groups as the objects of official control, but also limits the mobility of people of color and thus limits their access to many resources and opportunities otherwise widely available. That is, racial profiling reinforced existing patterns of segregation. Harris notes, Quote, racial profiling has behavioral as well as emotional costs. It may cause many people of color to plan their driving and travel routes in certain ways, to take or not take particular jobs, even to wear clothing and behave in ways that minimize their potential to attract police attention. They may simply stay out of places and neighborhoods where they will stand out, where police may feel they don't belong. Some even feel compelled to change the details of their personal behavior or appearance. They wear their suits, ties, and clerical collars as a kind of sartorial armor, or remove things they would normally wear." Unquote. Where the demands of the economy conflict with those of segregation, the enforcement of white supremacy may take a different but familiar form. In the Indianapolis suburb of Carmel, for example, a communications company relies largely on black workers from outside the immediate area. After an embarrassing lawsuit, the police department issued the workers special tags for their vehicles. These would signal to the police that if they should be allowed that they should be allowed to travel through the area. Harris compares this with the pass system in apartheid South Africa, but closer analogies are available. Passes, as we've seen, were a major feature of the slave system, were then applied to free black people, and survived emancipation as a means of limiting the mobility of black people. Race-based policing, and especially the fear of black criminality, has a more subtle function as well. Maintaining the ideological basis of white unity and indirectly controlling the political allegiances of white people. While people of color are the targets of racial profiling, 
there are actually two audiences for such police activity. Profiling serves to humiliate and threaten those who are targeted. Even when it does not lead to criminal sanctioning, it serves as a not very subtle reminder of their place. And it helps to align white people with the power structure by convincing them that the state protects them from purportedly criminal people of color. I've argued that racial profiling has more to do with maintaining white supremacy than with fighting crime. On the one hand, profiling is over-inclusive. A great many innocent people are treated with suspicion for no reason besides their race. On the other hand, white people are somehow exempt from the statistical reasoning used to justify profiling. With this in mind, it's worth considering the status of crimes associated with dominant groups. Rather than producing profiles and leading to concentrated enforcement, these crimes are downplayed, legitimized, treated leniently, or even decriminalized. Thus, the possession of crack cocaine is punished much more harshly than that of powder cocaine. Quote, People convicted of possessing 5 grams of crack get a minimum prison term of 5 years. It takes 500 grams of powder cocaine to draw the same sentence. Those serving time for crack tend to be disproportionately black. Powder is more in use among whites. Unquote. And let's not forget the enormous range of corporate crimes that are essentially handled as violations of administrative rules or as civil matters rather than criminal conspiracies. In the social control function, if the social control function operates as this argument suggests, it follows the same pattern as 19th century public order arrests and may be presumed to fulfill a similar function. And that's the end of the first half of chapter four.